Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, speak to us, we pray, through your living and active word this morning. We pray that your spirit would indeed take these words, preserve for us in, your, in scripture, and speak to our hearts, and bless us through it. May we each hear you speaking to us individually and personally this morning, encouraging us on our journey to the new creation. Amen. Well, I'm going to say a word to you, and I want you to reflect on your initial reaction to it when you hear it. Here it is. Rest. Rest. Well, what happened? What did you feel? Uh, probably your initial reaction was one of wistfulness. Uh, I think Rod is nodding very vigorously. Uh, oh, yes, please. And maybe, if only, uh, rest. Rest. Maybe the concept of rest is all the more alluring because we are under particular stresses at the moment. We're worn down by stresses because stresses, of course, make us tired. They make us weary. Rather than rest, maybe we have anguish. There are many things which uh, can loom on the horizons of our lives, many stresses which will, in a sense, make rest all the more alluring, but in, at the same time deny us rest. Uh, work stresses, the pressure to meet deadlines. You know, we're applying our, our physical and mental resources and powers, limited though they be, to, to achieving something. The stress of work, uh, academic stresses, particularly this time of year, uh, exams. Will I fail? Uh, spiritual stresses, uh, struggling with temptations, with besetting sins, struggling maybe with doubt. The stress of naked evil in terrorist atrocities. And there's the stress of parenting. Hey, it's demanding, it's hard work. You have to have your wits about you. And then there's the stress of those who would love to be parents and yet can't be. The stress of infertility. And then there are relationship stresses, uh, spouses, friends, family, neighbours, enemies, friction, mistreatment. And there's economic stresses. Uh, where am I going to get the money to pay for this? Uh, what if I lose my job? I can't find a job. Economic stresses, will there be enough? Physical or mental stresses from depression from other forms of sickness or disability. Uh, legal stresses, pending court cases, I'm in trouble with the law. Well, I'm feeling stressed, just lifting them all. Life can be stressful. There are many things which can crowd a horizon and which just wear us down. And therefore, the prospect of rest, rest from the stresses, is very, very alluring. Moving to that place where the stresses are put behind us, where we have peace, where we finally have that sense of well-being, where things are finally as they should be. Rest. Deep down, we all long for rest. Well, the first century Jewish Christians to which this letter was written, they were under stresses. They were in a very, very difficult place. Uh, it was because of their Christian faith. They were now facing rejection and persecution, a rejection by their own people, the Jews. Uh, persecution by powerful people, the Romans. And they were tempted to seek rest from these pressures by turning from Christ. 
returning to the safety and the peace and tranquility and the comfort of Judaism. If they return to Judaism, it would all go away. They all have to do is just slip away from Christ. But the righteous saying, hey, don't do it. Don't give up. They have heard the gospel. They've heard of God's promises, God's wonderful, precious promises. Forgiveness, blessing. And these promises have been proclaimed to them and they have responded to them. They've put their trust in Christ. They've responded with faith and belief. And now the writer is saying, hold on. Hold on to these precious promises. Keep trusting God's word. Don't let disbelief replace belief. Don't let your hearts become hard. And as we've been seeing, uh, how has the writer been doing this? Uh, He's got a twofold strategy, recall. He's been uh, wooing them, but also wooing them. Uh, Wooing, uh, showing them the beauty, the supremacy, the greatness of Christ. You don't want to turn your backs on him. He's the best thing ever. But wooing, uh, warning them, it would be catastrophic for you to turn your back on Christ. The greatest loss you could ever possibly experience. Woe, don't turn away from him. Uh, At the moment, uh, we're in the middle of a big woe. If you were with us last week, we started it back in chapter 3, verse 7. The writer has been taking his readers back and us to a national catastrophe in the history of Israel. A whole generation whose hearts hardened and who fell in the desert. They never made it to the promised land, to the place of God's rest. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 11. Uh, God declares to the Exodus generation, I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And we've seen that from this catastrophe, there's this timeless warning, which applies to every generation, including you and me here today. Don't let your hearts become hardened by disbelief. Keep trusting in God's promises. And in particular for New Testament believers, keep trusting in Christ. For of course we know, All God's promises point to him. All God's promises are fulfilled in him. And therefore, we've seen it's a call to persevere in our faith to the very end of our life, not just to start, but to finish. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 14, we saw last week. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Keep persevering. But what will encourage these first century Christians and us today to keep persevering? Indeed, why should they and we persevere? And so now in chapter 4, the writer picks up on why we should persevere. He picks up on the end goal of the Christian, God's rest. And the writer moves it to centre stage. In effect, he's saying, Let's think about this whole concept of God's rest. Let's explore it together. Let's ex- let me explain to you what God's rest truly is. The writer knows God's rest is a beautiful and precious promise of the, of the scriptures. And he knows that if they and we can even get just a little bit of a taste of what it truly is, if it can touch our hearts, we will be motivated to keep going, to keep going in the Christian faith. We, it's something we would not want to miss out on on any account. And that's my hope for our time together this morning, that in some way from this passage of Scripture, God will just touch us afresh with something of the wonder of this rest he ultimately offers us through Christ. So let's, uh, let's get into chapter 4. The writer starts with 
a warning. Uh, don't miss out. And then he moves on to an assurance. The promise of entering God's rest is still open. It's open to all who believe in Christ. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said, I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So, what is God's rest? What we're going to see is that God's promise of sharing in his rest is firstly, grounded in creation in the beginning. Secondly, it's pictured in Canaan in the land. And thirdly, it's fulfilled in the new creation in the future. So, firstly, God's promise of sharing in his rest is grounded in creation in the beginning. Uh, in chapter 3, uh, the Exodus generation who never made it to Canaan were said to have failed to enter God's rest. But what we're going to see is that God's rest is something far bigger and far more significant than settlement in a piece of scrubby Middle East real estate. God's rest is bigger than that. God's rest predates that. It goes all the way back to creation. What the writer does is he takes us back to the pre-fall paradise of Genesis chapter 2. And for this is where we first encounter the notion of God's rest. On the seventh day, God rested from his work of creating. And the writer quotes Genesis 2 verse 2. Look at Hebrews 4 verse 3, halfway through the verse. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. What does it mean for God to rest from his work? Well, of course, he's resting from the work of creating. He's finished the creating part and now he is enjoying what he's made. Uh, it's a bit like an artist who stands back from a newly finished masterpiece and goes, yes, this is fantastic. And he stands back and he admires it and he savours it. And that is what God does on the seventh day. God rests. He savours the goodness of all that he has made. And God's people share in that enjoyment with him. God's people share in that rest with him. If you like, it is a mutual delight in life, in creation being all it was meant to be. Creation functioning in perfect harmony. People living in right relationship with God, with each other and with nature. No sin, no pain, no death. Just peace, just joy, just flourishing, just wholeness, just satisfaction, just shalom. You see, the seventh day rest is the climax of creation. It's the purpose of everything. And that is what I was made for. And that is what you were made for. To enjoy living in God's place, in relationship with him. To share in God's rest. So, firstly, therefore, 
God's promise of sharing in his rest is grounded in creation. Uh, secondly, it is pictured in Canaan. Uh, we don't have to go far in the Bible before we see things falling apart. Uh, chapter 3, of course, of Genesis, the harmony of creation is shattered. Uh, the rest is lost. It's shattered by sin. God's people have to leave the paradise garden. And they lose God's rest. Yet what does God do? He's a gracious God. And in due course, he makes promises. Promises to restore his rest to humanity. Uh, the big set of promises, of course, come with Abraham. Uh, God promises him and his descendants a special land, a place of blessing, where God will be with his descendants and live with his people. Uh, hundreds of years, years later, uh, that promise is coming to pass. Uh, Abraham's descendants have now grown into a nation. And Moses is about to lead them out of slavery in Egypt to this promised land. And how is it described? Exodus, Exodus 33 verse 14, God says to Moses, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. There it is again, the rest. Uh, in due course, of course, the people do settle in the land uh, they're led, in, led into the land under Joshua and his leadership. But the rest in the land is not the rest, the perfect rest of Eden. It's just a picture of a still future rest at that point. And that's what the writer then goes on to explain. Uh, it's not particularly easy to see what he's saying in verses 5 to 8. If you would read it in the, um, the ESV, um, the ESV translates the, the Greek, and it's all one sentence, all three verses. Uh, the NIV breaks it up a little bit to help us, but it's still quite hard to grasp. But the point he's offering is this. The, the, point, uh, the offer of entering God's rest continues to be made even while the people were in the land. Therefore, God's rest must be something which lies still beyond the land of Canaan. Uh, in particular, the writer picks up on the time when the people were living in the land under the reign of King David. Uh, by that point, they'd been in the land for several hundred years. And yet, what does David do? He calls people to continue to have soft hearts. Otherwise, he warns them, you will never enter God's rest. He, but they're, they're in the land at that point. And it's pointing to God's rest still being something which lies beyond God's land, uh, beyond Canaan. And let me read to you uh, verses 5 to 8. See if you can pick it up. And again, in the passage above, he says, uh, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, uh, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. So, God's rest, it's pictured in Canaan, but that is not the final rest. It's pointing, it's a picture of something which is still yet to come beyond Canaan. So, when will those who believe once again share in God's rest? Verses 9 to 10 point us to the answer, because it's ultimately fulfilled in the new creation in the future. Verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Do you see? There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We haven't entered it yet. The promise of the rest is still future. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, the, word, the word translated here as Sabbath rest is uh, very significant. It's actually a different word to the Greek word used in the rest of these two chapters for the word rest. Um, it's a word that actually refers to a party, a celebration, which is the point of the kids' talk. Heaven is a party. And that's what this word is picking up on, the Sabbath rest. It's talking of a time of celebration, a time of great joy and festivity. A time when people are worshipping and praising God with great gusto. And what it's doing is it's tapping into this picture in Hebrews of this joyful, heavenly future gathering in the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God. Fast forward to Hebrews 12, verse 22. The writer says there, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. The city of God, the heavenly city, the new creation. It's a party. It's a time of great joy. It's where we are seeing the joyful Sabbath rest of the seventh day being restored to all who were there. It's life for God's people, of course, after the return of Jesus. It's life in the new creation. Life again as it was intended to be. Creation again in perfect harmony. Finally, in that wonderful heavenly city, we are granted true rest. We see it in Revelation 21, that picture of the new creation. Uh, verse 3. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. In that wonderful new creation, then we will have rest. Then we will be delivered from all the stresses that plague us now in a creation under God's curse. Just think about it, how wonderful it will be then. Then we will have immortal resurrection bodies. No longer will we suffer the stress of illness and disability. We'll have rest from all our ailments, from all our weaknesses. We'll have rest from the anguish of bereavement. Then we'll have minds and spirits which are cleansed from all sin. No longer will we suffer the stress of depression. We'll have rest from besetting sins and from relationship conflict. Uh, then we will have what the Bible calls shalom and an ending era of peace and prosperity, of flourishing. Then we'll have rest from terrorist atrocities. Then we'll have rest from all economic stresses, the worries that we won't have enough. And then we shall see him 
face to face, our Lord and God. No longer will we have to live by faith. We will then live by sight. We will delight in his presence with us in a way that we can only dimly glimpse now. Then we shall have rest from spiritual distance, from spiritual doubts, and from spiritual dullness. And then we shall rest from all our hard service to the Lord in this life. Then we will rest from our works as God did from his. Then we will no longer have to seek to save the lost and to strengthen the faint-hearted. Revelation 14 verse 13 says this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour, for their deeds will follow them. But that is still to come. It's a hope we have, but it's a future hope. But it's a hope that keeps us going in the present. It's the hope of sharing in that glorious final Sabbath rest, but it keeps us going in the present. Uh, Florence May Chadwick, don't know if you've heard of Florence May Chadwick, she was born on November 9, 1918. Uh, she died in 1985. Uh, she was an American long-distance swimmer. Uh, she was the first woman to ever cross the English Channel both ways. Uh, on the 4th of July, uh, 1952, uh, Florence, uh, then 34, set her goal at being the first woman to swim the 26 miles between Catalina Island and the Californian coastline. Uh, as she began this historic journey, uh, she was flanked by small boats that watched for sharks and were prepared to help her if she got hurt or grew tired. Hour after hour, Florence swam, but after about 15 hours, a thick, heavy fog set in. Florence began to doubt her ability and she told her mother, who was in one of the boats, that she didn't think she could make it. Her mother and her trainer continued to offer encouragement. They told her it wasn't much further, but all she could see was the fog. They urged her not to quit. She never had until then, but then she did. And as she sat in the boat... Florence found out that she had stopped swimming less than one mile away from the Californian shoreline. Florence explained that she quit because she could no longer see the coastline. There was just too much fog. She couldn't see her goal. Two months later, Florence got back in the water to try her task once more, and this time it was different. Uh, she swam from Catalina Island to the shore of California in a straight path for 26 miles. The same thick fog set in, but Florence made it because she said that while she swam, she kept a mental image of the shoreline in her mind. She didn't lose sight of the shore because she focused on that image and it kept her going. And she finally reached her goal. It's been said that the only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. And the writer of the Hebrews here is writing to give us vision. The vision of the heavenly rest. The heavenly rest that is for all those who continue to trust in Christ. And therefore, that vision in our mind keeps us going 
in the present. And so, the writer himself encourages us to keep going, to be energised by this vision. Verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example. We're not yet. Keep going. We don't yet have that glorious Sabbath rest. We still now do live by faith and not by sight. We don't yet see God's face, but we do have God's word. And that is what we need to listen to on that journey to the new creation through this barren land. And therefore, how we respond to God's word, it matters. God's word is the means that God speaks to us, the means which he speaks to our hearts. It's pictured here like a sword, a razor-sharp scalpel, which cuts away the things in our hearts which would otherwise dull them and bring about disbelief. God's word judges our hearts. It searches us, it convicts us of sin. It does this precious work of challenging us, of moving us forward. And it calls us to respond to these beautiful promises of God with faith. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must all give an account. God's word is precious. It does a great work in our hearts. How we respond to it, we will ultimately be accountable for. And therefore, we need to keep trusting, keep responding to the promises, keep allowing it to challenge us to shape us on that journey to the new creation. Let's close with Hebrews 4, verse 1, where we started off. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of us be found to have fallen short of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word gives us vision for the future. And in particular, this passage opens our eyes to the wonder of this rest which we will share in if we persevere to the end, trusting in Christ. Thank you for that beautiful picture of the Sabbath rest. The rest from all the stresses we currently experience now in a fallen world. Help us therefore to keep going and may your work be active and doing that wonderful work in each of our hearts and lives. Please we pray, help us to continue striving to the very end, uh, being humble before you, keeping our hearts soft, uh, putting your word into practice in our lives. Please, Lord, continue to sustain us on that journey to that new creation which awaits all those who trust in the Lord Jesus. Amen.